We are almost done with the Good and Beautiful Life series. Um, I'm heading into Jesus wrapping it up, and then John's going to be back up one more week to wrap it up and look at the very last part of the Sermon on the Mount. So we've been, the Good and Beautiful Life, we've been using the book of that title, which is using Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as kind of a vision for who we can be as God's people, which is exactly what it was meant to be. The Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, it's not a coincidence that Jesus is on a mountain. As Jesus is being presented in Matthew, he's like a new Moses. Just as Moses went up to Mount Sinai and got the covenant from the Lord, which was a vision for how Israel was to live their life in the world that the Lord has for us, Jesus is doing a similar thing, and his Sermon on the Mount is a new vision for a new people to live the life that God has for them. And so he began with the um, Beatitudes, which are an amazing list of things. And we're going to come back to those again. But Jesus is talking about things like mourning and meekness, as if those are good things. And it was really, it's really kind of rattling when you see the stuff that Jesus is saying along the way. He's told us that we fight evil by not resisting it. You respond to someone striking you on one side of the face by offering them the other side of the face. That this new life that Jesus has for his people really is a new thing. And so as he sums things up today, he's going to really bring that home, the newness and the new vision that's required to do that. So last week, as John was finishing up the teaching part of the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about living without judging. And that was really powerful for me because temperamentally, I'm judgmental. I mean, it's just I see what's wrong much more easily than I see what's right. So if I was in a museum looking at a painting with 45,000 brush strokes, my eye immediately goes to the five brush strokes that are wrong. Um, it's just kind of how I'm, I'm wired, um, you know? When my kids were in school, it was the one question that was wrong, not the 150 that were right that I wanted to talk to them about. I didn't do that. I was not that horrible of a parent. I was able to catch myself before I said it out loud. But I had to go through a process before I didn't do that. And so that was really powerful for me. And just seeing the way that Jesus gives us a vision to get beyond the way that we want to categorize people, we want to judge people, we want to put people in spots, to give us a much more inclusive and really empowering way to live. That's why it's kind of surprising that the very next thing that Jesus does after giving us the power to live without judging is he says this. He says, enter through the narrow gate. Now, this is a little confusing because he's just talked about something that's really inclusive and now he's saying, go through a narrow gate. And we're kind of just stuck wondering, where, where's he going with this? And this is, a, this is a confusing transition because it is. And part of what Jesus is doing here, well, he's doing two things. One is he's kind of being confusing on purpose. But the other thing that he's going to do, and we'll see this in a minute, is he's ending in a way that his audience would have recognized. Um, that what Jesus is trying to do throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and he's really trying to do it in these last three little analogies that he uses for what the kingdom, living in the kingdom is like, is he's trying to reorient us to the new reality of the kingdom by disorienting us. That the way he wants to enable us to live as if God is really here, 
because that's what the kingdom of God is about, living in the power of the present reality of God being with us right now, living in that reality. We are so hardwired to see and experience things in certain ways that Jesus knows that the only way we're going to get what he's really trying to help us see is to shake us and to move us out of the things that we're accustomed to seeing. And so that's why after this really nice, inclusive teaching on living without judging, he talks about go through narrow gates and narrow ways. So where's he going with this? He goes on to say this. He says, look, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Now, I know this is a Bible and you're not used to critiquing it, but that, that's actually pretty repetitious, right? He basically is just saying the same thing twice. It's two identical sentences. The only thing that are different, if you notice, are the adjectives. In the first sentence, it's wide, broad, many, and in the second sentence, it's small, narrow, few. Now, if I was an editor, I would have sent this back to Jesus and said, you know, there's a better way to say this. This is kind of boring. But that's the way we understand things. In his setting, to the audience that he was talking to in their literature, they loved repetition. And so what you would do with repetition, you would repeat things, and that would highlight the parts that are different. So what Jesus is trying to do here is call our attention to the elements that are different in these two sentences. That there are two different ways. One is wide and broad and involves many. The other one is small and narrow and few. And notice that all of those words are visual. And that's what Jesus is really trying to do in this episode and the next two, is he wants us to learn how to see differently because the kingdom is literally all around us. And Jesus wants us to be able to have eyes to see that and to grab hold of it. But if we're all we're ready to do is to see what we've always seen and look in the ways that we've always looked, we're not going to be able to see it. It's only if our eyes are open to something entirely new that we've never experienced before are we going to get it. Now, Jesus does, if you know this end of the Sermon on the Mount, we're in chapter 7 of the Gospel of Matthew. If you have a dead tree Bible you want to follow along in or a a device that you want to follow along in. This is, in their setting, it's a classic way of bringing things together. Um, in, the, in the rhetoric of Jesus' time, you would often make three points that are related and then a fourth point that really brings it home. We're going to look at the three related points today, and then next week as John wraps things up, he's going to look at that fourth point and bring it together. But Jesus is doing what we do now. It's like ending a sermon with tears or... You know, it's ending a movie with the soundtrack going up. There's certain conventions that people are used to. And Jesus' audience would have been used to this. And so what he's doing is a classic way of bringing it home. Now, there's a reason why Jesus is so focused on what's visual. He wants us desperately to live in the reality of the kingdom of God. You know, the whole idea of the good and beautiful life is we talk about that one day we're going to go on to a better place. And somewhere along the way, we've gotten the idea that the best things that we experience from God are in the next life. They're after this one. That we're, we're, it's in the resurrection. It's in heaven. But you know what? 
Jesus came, and the topic he talked about most was the coming of the kingdom of God. And for Jesus, the coming of the kingdom meant that that someday is here now. You don't have to wait for it. You have to open your eyes to see things that are different, see things differently, and open your hands and let God fill them with the reality and the power of his kingdom. Jesus came to say that God's best is here for us right now. But he knows that we are hardwired in ways that is going to make it hard for us to see that. And so that's why these three little um, vignettes that he has here at the end are designed to kind of shock us and help us see something differently. To, to further make my point, though, Jesus himself spoke to this directly. In another place, in the Gospel of Luke, he was being asked, hey, what's the kingdom of God going to look like? Because for his audience, they had a very well-developed idea of the kingdom of God. For first-century Jews, it meant that God was going to reestablish the nation-state of Israel. They were living under Roman occupation, and the kingdom of God meant that God was going to send the Messiah, throw the Romans in the sea, and reestablish Israel. Knowing this, Jesus knew that what God had in in store for his people was something even better that didn't involve throwing the Romans in the sea. It meant living beyond the Romans. It didn't meant having God just work through a Messiah, but it meant having God work through the hearts of everybody as he pours his spirit out on all flesh. But they weren't ready to see that yet. And so that's why Jesus is shocking him. So he's answering this question one time, well, what's the kingdom going to be like? And he says, you know what? The coming of the kingdom is not something that could be observed. He's basically saying, in the way that you're used to. If you want to know where the kingdom is, you're going to have to set aside your expectations because those are going to color what you're able to see. He says, and people aren't going to be able to say, well, here it is or there it is. And the reason is, is the kingdom of God is in your midst. They thought the kingdom of God was going to be one country in one place with a specific set of rules. And God's vision for his people and his vision for us was far greater than that and went far beyond that. So that's, again, why Jesus is trying to literally shock us into some new ways of thinking. So back to Matthew 7. So Jesus says, look, choose the narrow gate. And he says, here's why. You don't want to choose the wide one, and you want to choose the narrow one. He says, because the the wide, wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So what Jesus is talking about here, essentially, is the power of numbers. It is hardwired into us to go with the crowd. If you want to know what's good, if you want to go to a restaurant that's good, what's the one that has people standing outside of it all day long? You know, if you want to know which movies are good, lots of people go to them. It's hardwired into us to make determinations about what's good and what's bad by what other people are doing. Now, for a few of us, if you're like me, once everybody likes something, I can't like it anymore, and then I have to do the other thing. Um, If I was younger and still skinny, I would probably be one of those hipsters that would listen to a band, and then once everybody else liked them, I couldn't like them anymore. I would, I still do that, and I'm not young or skinny. But 
But notice what I'm doing. I'm still taking cues from everybody else on what I'm doing. Um, my brother has two stepsons, and they literally don't know what they like until they know what's popular. And my brother and I go see art house movies together, and they look at us and they're astonished. Like, why would you go see that movie? It's not showing in 47 theaters. It's only showing in two theaters, one in Pasadena and one in West L.A. Why would you go to that? Everybody's not going to it. And I'm thinking, well, that's kind of the point. I don't want to go to the movie that everybody's going to. But the reality is, is what I'm doing and what my brother's stepsons are doing is essentially the same thing. We take our cues, and this is just hardwired into us. Um, I have a couple of cats at home. If you dangle string by them, they, they do this. It's hardwired into cats to do what cats do. It's hardwired into us as human beings to take our cues for what's right and what's good and what's valuable by what everybody else is doing. So either you follow the crowd or you do that sort of semi-hipster thing where you don't follow the crowd, whatever it is. But you're still taking your cues from everybody else. The narrow way that Jesus is talking about, he's not, Jesus is not advocating hipsterism. He's, saying, he's not saying... Go to the small movie, listen to the obscure band, you know, make sure you only have B-sides of French hip-hop on your iPod. He's not saying stuff like that. What Jesus is saying is that the narrow way is him. He's saying a really profound thing, and he's really trying to shake us up here. He's trying to say, guys, shake yourself. I'm the way, as he says in another way, place. I am the truth, I am the life. I am the door, he even says in the Gospel of John. And you need to find your sense of what's right, of what's good, in me. He's the narrow door. He's the narrow way. And so the first thing that he's telling us is just check yourself on this. That there is a new way of seeing. Instead of looking at what everybody else is doing and either following the crowd or going against the crowd, Learn to put your eyes on Jesus. Learn to put your eyes on where he was and what he did and what he said. And and this sounds kind of obvious, right? I'm a Christian. I should pay attention to Jesus. It's kind of obvious until you really try doing it, until you really try measuring yourself against how influenced we are by what everyone else is doing, by the crowd or not the crowd. And Jesus is saying that he himself is the narrow way. He himself is the door. So the first thing he's asking us to do as we look is to keep our eyes on him and not on everybody else. So that's analogy number one. Secondly, Jesus continues with the happy talk and says, hey, watch out for false prophets. It's kind of harsh, but he actually gets harsher in the next one, so hang on. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Okay, that kind of makes sense. And notice his language is pretty strong here. So how do you know the difference? He says, by your fruit, by their fruit, you will recognize them. How do you tell a, a true speaker from a false one, a real prophet from a bad one, a guy who's a nice person and a guy who's dressed up as a nice person but really is a wolf inside, you recognize them by their fruit. And then he gives some analogies here. He says, he says look, do people pick grapes from thorn brushes or figs from thistles? 
So Jesus is making a nice rhetorical trick here. He's appealing to the audience. The audience is going, no, no, I know that. You know, so, so Jesus is getting them on his side, sort of. Instead of me talking to you, it's like us yeah. together, both of us. We both know that figs don't come from thistles, right? Right. Yeah. So Jesus is getting the audience in. And then he continues to make the point. He says, likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but bad trees bear bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and bad trees cannot bear good fruit. Again, as Jesus' editor, I want to tell him, kind of made the point. Let's move on to it. But that's exactly Jesus' point. Well, wait a minute. This is kind of obvious. So what's in this for me? And then Jesus brings it home and gives something surprising. He says, look, there's a lot at stake here. There's a lot at stake. Because every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, at some point, I think Jesus is trying to appeal to our worst natures. Yeah, you know, we like to see them being taken down. Desi and I were talking about this before. We were talking about shirtless and toothless people, so we were talking about the show Cops. And, um, and I don't know, I can't watch shows like that. Um, I can't watch the early weeks of American Idol when the delusional people are having their delusions punctured. Um, I don't mind watching powerful people being taken down, but people that are not powerful, it's, it's, it's hard. It feels like, you know, I feel like if you're going to punch, it should punch up, never down. But what Jesus is doing here is he's engaging that part of ourself. Yeah, go get him, go get him. I say, well, wait a minute. And then he brings us back to the other point. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So notice what Jesus has done. He spent a lot of time telling us obvious things. Figs come from fig trees. Thistles don't grow fruit. You know, and, and if you've ever lived near an orchard, you know what happens to trees that don't bear fruit. They get torn out and they get burned down and you use fruit wood for barbecue and things like that. There's lots of good things that happen from that. So none of this is new. So what Jesus is saying here is, He's really putting the emphasis on this last sentence. Again, by your fruit, you'll recognize them. But did you notice what Jesus left out? How do I know what the fruit is? How do I know what the good fruit is? So here's the problem, what Jesus is saying with wolves in sheep's clothing. Another thing that we are hardwired into us is the idea that we look on the surface of things. We are bombarded with so many different things throughout the day that we need to make really quick judgments about stuff. And so we tend to use stereotypes. We tend to use certain patterns to make sure what's going on. If you're a good reader, you actually don't even read all the words in a sentence. You only see what you think is going to be there. And occasionally, this, this happens to strong readers, they read something and they miss something. Because you see what you thought was going to be there and not what was actually there. But Jesus is telling us that our expectations shape our vision. We expect to see certain things. And we use these categorizations. When I was young, I grew up in the area where the wild parrots first started living. um, Up in the Arcadia, Pasadena area. And for a few years, there were these flocks of wild parrots flying around the Arcadia, Pasadena area. But 
those can't be parrots because this is California. Parrots don't live in California. Therefore, that flock of parrots can't be a flock of parrots because our expectations shaped what we could see. We could see that they were parrots, but because we knew that parrots couldn't live where these parrots were living, they couldn't be parrots. Until after a couple of years, somebody with authority says, you know, those are parrots. And then, oh, we have parrots that live here. <laughs> but I spent two years looking at parrots and listening to parrots and watching parrots land on our avocado tree and ruin the avocado crop because they would take one bite out of each avocado and then move on before I realized they were parrots. We are hardwired to see the surface of things, to see the outside, and we categorize people. For me, if somebody speaks in an educated English accent, I immediately give them credibility. Um, Sometimes in church settings, you'll notice that speaking with a slightly twangy American accent gives you credibility. I have a friend who grew up in Missouri, lived here since he was 12. He ought to sound like me because he's lived, and he does most of the time until he preaches. And then because it's church and he's figured out that, you know, just like crying at the end of the sermon means you really care. um, He's learned that if he puts a little twang in his voice, that gains him credibility with people along the way. We all have these things that go along. Each of us, our expectations shape how we see. And what Jesus is warning us against is to shake up those frameworks that we have, that those frameworks don't empower us. They make us feel like we're going faster. They make us feel like we know what's going on. But what Jesus wants to do is to deliver us from that and help us see an entirely new way of life that's predicated not on us balancing things out and who's up and who's down among us, but the fact that God has invited all of us to be part of his kingdom. He wants to deliver us from those kinds of petty classifications that we always do with each other. I I just had this experience the other day. Um, Wendy and I live in Glendora, um, which is an upper middle class community where these kinds of things are really essential. It's really important to know where people live so you can know how to talk to them. So we were at a family event the other day, um, and there was a guy we hadn't met before. He was a friend of our sister's. Uh, my sister's, and he found out we were from Glendora. And I saw him with one ear. I'm, I'm actually trying to talk to somebody. You know how you're talking to somebody, but you're actually more interested in this conversation? <laughs> so I, I was doing that. And, and so he's quizzing my wife. There's this thing that Glendora people do where they quiz each other to find out where it fits. And he's like, and so what he asks is, so where did your son go to middle school? Now, he had my sister standing there right nearby, and my, my son was fortunate to go to a really nice college later on, and my sister's listening to this, and she had told this guy my kid's story all along, and she interrupts and says, why, why are you asking where he went to middle school? He went to Yale. Why does that matter? Well, in Glendora, more than going to Yale, what matters is did you go to Sandburg or did you go to Goddard? My kids went to Sandburg less valuable. His kids, of course, went to Goddard. And he wanted to know, well, where do you live? And Wendy says, oh, we live by the post office. Now, that is zero territory in Glendora. (laughs) Live south of Foothill. It's Glendora only on your address. 
If you live north of Foothill, that's, that's the next tier. If you live north of Sierra Madre, but in the west part of town, that's the next tier. And if you live north of Sierra Madre and the east part of town, that's where you live. And guess where he lived? <laughs> and the thing is, is I, it was just, it was kind of crazy. But I, I, I do the same thing. And you do the same thing. And the sad part is, is this is so hardwired into us. We do the same thing when God is trying to do a new thing in our life. We try to fit what God is doing into these pre-existing categories. And that our expectations for who we are and what God can be in our lives are so narrow and so rigid that we can't even see the thing that God is trying to do in our lives. So he's telling us to watch out for wolves in sheep's clothing, that you're expectations can actually diminish your vision. In the end, we only see what we expect to see. So what he wants us to do, though, remember he left us hanging? What's real fruit? Well, he's already covered this. He's taken us back, I think, to the, sermon on, to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, what we call the Beatitudes. If you want to know what real fruit is, I think Jesus has told us. It's mostly this. Listen to what he says here. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That if you want to see what real fruit is, look at who Jesus blesses. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That's real fruit. Blessed are the meek, for they will gain the fruit of inheriting the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not those that are already filled, but those that are hungry because they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what fruit looks like. That's the kind of fruit of a person who's living in the reality of the kingdom. And this is why Jesus has to shake us up, because all of these things are normally things that we tend to think of as dead ends, as roadblocks of closed doors, not as a measure of possibility, but as the end of possibility. And what Jesus is telling to us is that in his kingdom, when he is present, when he is at work, Each of these things become not an ending point, but a beginning point. Each of these things are not a closed door to the best kind of life that you can have, to the good and beautiful life, but these actually become entryways into those. So if you're looking for people to listen to and looking for fruit in their life, are they people who can take poverty, mourning, meekness, and walk through those into the good and beautiful life that Jesus has for us? Those are the people you want to listen to. Those are the people you want to listen to. Not the person with the loudest voice, not the person with the most compelling voice, not the funniest person, but the person who hungers and thirsts for God. The person who can show mercy from a position of strength. The person who maintains purity in a place that often tells us to compromise. Those that are working for peace and those that have received some bad trouble because of their stands for Jesus. That's the kind of fruit you want to look for when you're looking 
to who you should listen to. That's pretty good. Now, Jesus gets even more harsh with his third analogy, or his third point. I don't even know. There's probably a big five-syllable word for what Jesus is doing here. I forgot what it is. But he says this. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, because only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And that one phrase, it's the one who does the will of his Father, is going to be a key thing as we wrap things up. But it gets even harsher. He says, you know, many on that day, at the end of all things, are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And didn't we drive out demons? And in your name, didn't we perform many miracles? I mean, these are all good things. These are all God things, right? I mean, who can do miracles and cast out demons and, and prophesy except when God's in their life? But look at what Jesus says. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew, for, knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, this is kind of harsh. I mean, this is not, you know, you read the gospel for good news. That's, that's not good news. Jesus is telling a lot of people who thought they were doing the right thing, it didn't matter. How could Jesus talk to people who had experienced miracles and say, I never knew you? How can that happen? Well, I think there's a reality here that Jesus is trying to point us to. And it's the idea that we don't get to know him best in big spiritual events. Again, this is how we are hardwired If you look at traditional religion around the world, people tend to think that gods live in particular places. And the Lord spends the entire Bible trying to bust that out and get the idea that he's literally everywhere and he's with all of us. You don't go to visit God at a temple. That God is with us in our hearts, in our lives, in every place. But it's hardwired into us to think that God is somewhere else and that we have to travel to him. When the Lord is saying over and over, that's the idea. The kingdom of heaven is in our midst. He's here right now with us. It's also hardwired into us to want to see and be ready to see that the clearest signs of God are the miraculous. That prophesying, demons being cast out, people being healed. And don't get me wrong, those are all good things. But my experience has been, and I think this is the point Jesus is making. I have a relatively small sample size, but there are three instances where I've been alongside people who clearly experienced miracles. And at the end of those miracles, it was like, that's it. I clearly get that God is present in my life, that I am absolutely going to follow him. There's no doubts anymore that this is what I'm going to do. And on average in those three stories, it lasted six weeks. And they were back to the same broken, unempowered, God's distant that they had seen. So why is Jesus so harsh here? It's because he wants us to know that as we live in the kingdom, every aspect of our life can belong to him. Not just when we go to visit holy places. And not just when we have things that we can only call miracles invade our life. 
What Jesus wants us to be able to see here is that we are hardwired. Where's God? Where have I seen a miracle? Where have I seen somebody healed? Where did I see somebody speak in a special voice that sounded like only from God? Where did I see somebody cast out a demon? And all of those things are great when they happen. But if that's all we're ready to see, we are going to miss the vast, vast, vast number and times and ways that God wants to be at work in our life. That he wants to take those things that the that the Beatitudes called blessed, that called happy, poverty, mourning, meekness, hunger and thirst, mercy, purity, peacemakers and persecuted. You know what's miraculous? Is that when those things become not closed doors but open doors, when those things stop being a roadblock and become the path that we follow, when we find power not with the powerful but through those disempowering events that we can only account for our ability to be blessed in mourning and blessed in poverty and blessed when we give mercy rather than feeling like we lost the game because we have tapped into the real power of God. But if we're not concentrated and ready to see it, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss it. And it's all around us. It's all right there if we're just ready to take hold of it. You don't have to go anywhere to enter the kingdom of God. It's right here. You don't have to do anything to enter the kingdom of God other than just open your hands and let God take hold of you. The kingdom of God is not a place that you travel to. It's a state of being that God wants to give to all of us right now. The best way I can help us finish up to see this is to tell a story that happened um, in the 16th century when Portugal was first colonizing the New World. You guys know the reason Brazilians speak Portuguese is it was colonized by Portugal. And they had just begun to take, um, the Portuguese had just begun to take possession of Portugal. And in the late 1500s, they sent a, a convoy of 12 ships that were called caravels. Now, I don't know what caravel means other than that's a caravel. At least Google told me it was. I, I typed in Portuguese caravel, and this is what came up. So as long as Google's not lying to me... Um, and it was the top listing, so I'm sure it's true. Um, but there was a, a, a group of 12 of these that set out from Portugal to Brazil. And again, none of the people on these ships had ever been to the New World. All it was was a set of stories. All it was was a set of worlds. It was entirely out of their reference. And all these people had was an old world frame of reference. And they, they'd heard fantastic stories, but they had no idea. They had a particularly rough voyage along the way. And so when one ship arrived off the coast of Brazil, the other 11 had gone down along the way. And these guys were traumatized. They were out of food, they were out of water, and literally just out of energy. And the ship was drifting off the coast of Brazil. And the sailors were so tired and so hungry and so out of water, they couldn't do anything else. Fortunately for them, the people on the shore on the, um, in the little settlement there saw them and came out on small boats. And they said, we're, we're dying here. We need water. And the guys on the little boat said, just let down your buckets. And they're like, no, no, no. I, we must be hallucinating. We can't do this. Because when people are thirsty, they're tempted to do that. They're tempted to drink seawater because they know that it's water, but they know they'll die if they drink seawater. 
And so we can't do this. And they wondered if they were hallucinating. And they, again, the man in the little boat says, no, put down your buckets. And they're like, no, it's seawater. It will kill us if we do it. And they said, no, put down your buckets. And having no other choice, they did. And the water came up fresh and pure. What they didn't know, because they'd never been there before, and they'd never seen it before, is they were actually in the mouth of the Amazon River, which was so big and so wide, they couldn't imagine that they were in a river. They thought they were still at sea. Friends, the kingdom of God is like that. We are right in the midst of it. And so what God is asking us to do today, and Vajra will come back forward, we'll, uh, she'll finish up for us today. But what God is inviting us to do today is to put down our buckets, to stop seeing things in the way that we're used to seeing, to stop counting by what people do the most, of disciplining ourselves to not just look at the surface of things, of allowing ourselves to see God in the small things and not just in the big spectacular things, but to put down our buckets because the kingdom of heaven, it's all around us. It's here right now. We are in its midst. Thank you.